0: hello and welcome back to the most hated f-word podcast i am excited for another episode for the new guest welcome to the show and for the returning guest we are glad you are back here for another episode today we're diving headfirst into one of life's biggest questions does money buy happiness before we get started let me introduce you to our incredible guest judy oppahem with a background in psychology and marketing Judy has spent over 20 years exploring the intricate relationships between consumer insights and human motivation. In fact, she's so passionate about understanding what makes us truly happy that she became a certified happiness trainer from Tal Ben-Shahar's Happiness Studies Academy. Tal was a previous guest on the show and his work is fantastic. I highly suggest you check out Tal's work. Today, Judy will be talking to us about scientific research that is helping us navigate this age-old question, does money buy happiness? So here's the thing. We all want to be happy, right? It's one of the ultimate pursuits in life. But is money the golden ticket to everlasting happiness? Or is there more to the story? In the conversation with Judy today, we'll be looking at classic studies like the Kahneman studies, as well as the recent Michael Killingsworth study which showed a new perspective on this question of money and happiness. Judy also introduces us to the Spire model, which is a model that can help us feel more happy or happier in our life and how we can integrate it with our financial lives. We'll also dive into the research behind the hedonic treadmill. Why do we adapt to our material possessions? Plus, we'll unravel the debate between experiences, and material possessions. Which one should or should we not spend our money on? Before we get into the episode, if you've been enjoying the podcast, it would mean a lot to me if you could take a couple minutes, head over to Apple Podcasts, and leave a review. Or share this episode or another episode with someone who you think might enjoy it. And finally, if you're interested in getting your own custom money story song specifically written based on your money story, RootHub and I have launched Project 100 Financial Anthems where we are going to take 100 people through our online program and then create an individual custom song that you'll be able to listen to for the rest of your life. It is truly remarkable. If you're interested, head over to financialanthem.com where you can find all the information. Again, that's financialanthem.com. And now here is my fascinating conversation with Judy.
1: Navigating the money story had me lost at sea. I could not catch the wave to take me where I needed to be. Afraid of having not enough, fear of wanting way too much. And notion of abundance taught me how to dance and ditch the crutch.
0: Judy, welcome to the podcast. I am pleased you're here.
1: Thank you. I'm so thrilled to be here. Thank you for inviting me.
0: We are going to tackle the topic of money and happiness. Yeah. I think a good place to start is a simple but very complicated question. Mm-hmm. It's around a topic or a word we say all the time. We mm-hmm. basically orientate our lives around. But I think for many of us, we have a hard time defining it. So let's start with what is happiness?
1: That's an excellent question. So as you mentioned in the intro, the reason we connected is I took Tal Ben-Shahar's Happiness Studies Academy course. And what he talks about, and I know you, Megan go a few weeks ago about PERMA. And his acronym that he uses is SPIRE in terms of the five elements that make up a well-being and a happy life. And they're spiritual well-being, physical, intellectual, relational, and emotional. And that acronym is SPIRE. I actually worked with Tal on a project last year where we took those five elements and broke them down to 15 sub elements to give a little more detail on what those different five mean. And for spiritual, some of the key areas are mindfulness. That's a very hot topic these days about being more mindful and all the benefits of mindfulness. It's about having meaning and purpose in your life. And that's something that we all need. And it's about playing to your strengths. And I think that's something else that's become very popular in the last 10 years. Rather than focusing on your weaknesses, focusing on your strengths. So that's the spiritual part of it. The physical part of it, exercise is really important. We know that. Nutrition. Rec- and also the one that gets a little less notice is the idea of recovery. And Tull talks a lot about the idea of rest and renewal. That And, you know, exercise, there's that idea you shouldn't use weights every day. You need to rest your muscles. And the same thing, with your life, you need rest and recovery. And it's like throughout the day you need to take breaks, during a week, during a month, you need to go on vacations, little vacations, longer vacations. But the idea that stress is bad for you, like stress is not necessarily bad for you. Chronic stress is bad for you. It's how you deal with stress and stress can actually be good for you. It can be motivating. But you need those breaks and you need the renewal so it's not constant stress. So that's a second area. The ions for intellectual, that relates to being in a positive environment, both the physical things surrounding you, like inspirational quotes on the wall, having plants, having a view, those types of things. The importance of being curious and open to new ideas, that's an important part of intellectual development. And then deep learning, the whole idea of flow and the way you learn, it's going deeper into things and mastery. That's a very important area. And then the fourth one is relational. Every person you've had on your show that talks about happiness, you know, it's pretty consistent. Relationships are the most important component of happiness. So relationships are really important. And some of the skills you need around that, having good communication skills there's so much the importance of how you communicate in terms of building good relationships the importance of having supportive relationships and romantic relationships are really important but also friendships and also communities are very important and even micro connections are important just saying hello to the cashier in a store or saying hello to somebody who passed by on the street are really important and then being kind and I think that's probably an under under appreciated value is the importance of kindness and that is so important how you treat people and then the fifth one is the emotional one so it's two parts of emotion one is learning how to manage difficult emotions because that's really important and then equally important is learning how to cultivate pleasurable emotions What makes you happy? How can you have more better emotions? And then the value of reframing things. So how you look at things, how you remember things, how you interact with things is going to have a big impact. And one of the classic things that comes up a lot is, and I was thinking about it just before we got on, is a lot of people, including myself, get nervous before they're speaking. And if you think of it as nerves versus excitement, it's the same adrenaline going through your body, but you're reframing how you think about it. And then also with relationships, it's thinking about somebody said something, give them the benefit of the doubt. You may be interpreting it the most negative way, but maybe there's a better way, or maybe they had a bad day, or maybe they meant something differently. So if you have a more positive mindset of how you approach things, you can reframe things and look at things differently. So those are... Fifteen sub-elements to twelve key five spire elements.
0: Yeah, thank you for that. What I really appreciate about models such as Perma or Spire that Mm -hmm. you just went through is that we often hear, "I want to be happy. I'm aspiring to be happy." But there's research that has come out that shows that when the focal point is to be happy, in fact, sometimes these individuals result in less happy or feeling less happy happiness isn't a destination in itself it's not a trait or characteristic it's the outcome it's it's the the outcome outcome. of
1: doing all these things Mm -hmm. leads to a happier life and again tall talks about it's like the sun you can't look at it directly happiness you can't get it directly you get it indirectly by doing these different things
0: yeah i love that sun analogy it's My eyeballs are certainly going to hurt if I'm looking at that sun, but my gosh, when I'm sitting on the patio in the evening and those sun rays are just illuminating the street, it's beautiful. And what I really like about these models around Spire is it gives us something to focus our intention on. Like I intend to have good relationships. I intend to have more positive emotions in my life or bring in spirituality or more physical movement, whatever it may be, but it also helps us with this model not only get the intention, but attention. So I like this dual of our intention is, I want to have a good life or feel happiness, but the attention I need to do is through this SPIRE model, in this case, incorporate more spirituality, physical movement, intelligence and relationships. And what was it?
1: Emotion, emotion. Emotion,
0: positive emotion.
1: Yeah. Oh, I was going to say another thing that Tal talks about that I think is very important is... He calls it MBIs, minimal viable intervention. And it's similar to BJ Fogg's tiny habits that atomic habits talks about it as well that small changes can have a big impact and small activities that doesn't have to be a big thing, but small things done regularly. And as you make it into a habit, can have a big impact. And just before I got on, one thing that, you know, that idea of HIT, high impact intensity training is like, Two minutes of running in place to calm down and get my stress level down before I talk to you, and mm. taking read deep breaths when you're stressed, and taking the stairs instead of instead of what you know taking the elevator, kind of thing. There are small things you can do that can over time have a big impact, and that's in all those five elements.
0: I I really enjoy that because I feel like sometimes we create these aspirational larger-than-life models that like seem really neat to talk about, but implementing them might seem mm. audacious and overwhelming. And I think models like this with Spire, you can start tomorrow. And it makes me think of when the pandemic hit, I was working from home more, and I just started walking my kids to school every day. It took 30 minutes round trip, but over the last three years, I can't even believe how many enjoyable moments, conversations, being outside, how little of a thing that kind of is. But over the last three years, it's really added up to this really special time I have with my kids when they're such a, at a nice age. So I guess that's just an example of some of these things can be relatively small, but an accumulation of them over time really adds up.
1: Yeah, and another thing that I like is the idea of happiness stacking. So that you do multiple things that make you happy at the same time. It's like the opposite of temptation bundle. It's what you were saying about going for a walk. I live near a park. I go for a walk. So I get the exercise of a walk. I get that there's a lot of research about how being in nature is really good for you. If I walk with a friend, then I'm getting the social part of getting social interaction as well as intellectual stimulation. And then often I bring my phone and I'm taking photos of flowers and trees and birds And I'm doing a hobby and I'm engaging in that. So if you can do multiple things at the same time, you can even increase your happiness level even more.
0: And what I appreciate about this is you're not just saying it's mindset. You just got to think you're going to be happy and you'll be happy. You got to will yourself to be happy. (laughs) And I, I appreciate that. The thought and detail and research that has gone into what you're talking about. So that, because I think that we run the risk of this happiness conversation where sometimes we just expect to be ha- we should be happy. And if we're not happy, something's wrong with us.
1: I think it's even more than that. It can be very damaging if you feel like I wish to be happy and therefore I should be happy mm-hmm. versus doing the work that you need to do to be happier. And I think the other thing that's a big thing for Talon, I think is a really important point to get across. Is it's about being happier and not being happy. Nobody's going to be happy all the time, and doing these things doesn't guarantee you're going to be quote happy, but it does mean you will be happier than you would be if you didn't do these things.
0: Yeah, you read so many different types of books. Whether it's the I can't remember the title off the head, but well, off the top of my head, but the five things of the dying. I'm blanking on the author, but the author, that hospice author who interviewed people on end of life and the top regret top regrets of the dying. And that relationship keep that relationship piece always is coming in. And I think it helps us books like that, models like Aspire help us just zoom out a bit and see are we doing these little pieces? Are we putting our intention towards these things that are actually gonna create this happier life?
1: The other thing I would say related to what you, sorry, is, is no, that no, please. all these five are interconnected. As you do one, it makes it easier to do the other. Like if you get enough sleep, if you eat well, you're more likely to do a better job intellectually. You're going to be less likely to get in a fight with friends. If you have strong social support, you're, they talk about it's good if you're trying to exercise, get a buddy to do it with or if you're trying to lose weight, have a buddy to do it with. They're all very interconnected, all these different things. Yeah, yeah. And they get going on an upward spiral is a way to think about it versus a Mm -hmm. downward spiral.
0: Yeah, and that makes me think of something we were talking about before we recorded about when life brings you difficult times, positive psychology or the SPIRE model is not suggesting that we ignore the last part of our spiral here, E, emotions, but negative emotions. It's not about ignoring these negative emotions because they come, but why don't you touch on this upward spiral? That's what I think is fascinating about this model is it builds this resilience emotional bank account for when those rough waters, so to speak, come, we can deal with them. So maybe just touch on this idea of how do negative emotions fit into this model?
1: There's been a lot of research about if you have a pessimistic mindset, that is going to hurt your happiness and hurt your satisfaction with life over time and make you less successful. And I actually just read a wonderful book. It's called Remember. Yeah. Let me just learn. It's by Lisa Genova, and it's an amazing book, and it's called The Science of Memory and the Art of Forgetting. And one thing that she talks about is you can control your memory to some extent, in terms of what you remember. And our memories are not like tape recorders. They don't, they're not set. They're not, this is exactly what you remember. And over time, they, if you don't think about them, you lose them. And it goes into more detail than that on how it works. But one of the points she makes is that if you focus on the negative things that happened in your life, those are the ones that are going to be strengthened. And those are the ones that you remember. And that's going to make your life worse. Versus if you focus on the positive things that have been happening in your life, those are the ones that are going to come more readily to mind. Those are the ones that you're going to remember. So ruminating is really bad for you in terms of that. And I think going back to your older question about negative emotions, I think part of one of the things we talked about was mindfulness is being mindful of when you're having negative emotions. Understanding why you're having those emotions and thinking about what you can do about those emotions, how you can do something to get into a better mindset. Can you get out of your environment? Can you go for a run? Can you call a friend? Those types of things that you can manage your emotions more than you realize. And even the simple thing, you know, they talk about count to 10 before you say something you're going to regret. It's being that mindful that you're stressed out, you're tired, you're hungry. You're angry, you're frustrated, and that's when you might say something you regret or you might want to take a break and that rest and renewal kind of thing.
0: Yeah, so interesting. So thanks so much for sharing this, these building blocks on how to be, to use what Tal says, happier. I think it's important when we bring this conversation in around money and happiness, Mm -hmm. almost think of it like a sailor would never set sail without knowing the direction they're going. They would never aimlessly float down the ocean. Mm -hmm. Having this conversation and understanding the building blocks to living happier helps us navigate our stories, our money stories, when we introduce this thing called money. Mm -hmm. And I'd like to start talking about money and happiness. (laughs) Two things that have been talked about so often. And there's these ongoing debates, you might want to call them, surrounding the connection between money and happiness. It's debated whether you can have both wealth and happiness, or is it not so black and white? You can have both, or you can have both. You don't need just one or the other. So I guess I'm going to turn this over to you. Because this topic is somewhat subjective in nature, like self-report, what influential research studies do you lean to when you look to find out what is the connection between happiness and money?
1: So I would say that the research I've done actually is much more consistent than than people may realize. I think there's a pretty consistency that it's not just the importance of not just how much money you make, but what you do with that money and how much you save and what you spend it on and experiences versus, versus things. I, I want to start by the reason that we connected is because I had done a presentation on money and happiness to the happiness studies academy group. And what got me started on that was the study, the famous study by Daniel Kahneman that said that above $75,000 income, does, people don't aren't happier. And one, it struck me as didn't seem right to me. And two, there was a new study that had come out that refuted that. So let me just touch, ba- touch on that a minute. And then they resolve their differences. Just to step back a second, there are two ways that these studies evaluate happiness. And a lot of studies do this. One is what's called evaluative happiness, which is how a person rates his or her life overall. And then there's what's called experienced happiness, which is more what a person experiences in their daily life. So they might get pinged and asked, how, how happy, how are you feeling yesterday about XYZ or how are you feeling in this moment? So that evaluative versus ex- experience. And then the famous study, as I said, that gets quoted a lot that, and we know that the press tends to simplify things and mm-hmm. sensationalize things. So they ran with that. So number one, it was done in 2010. And I haven't checked this year, but then that would be $104,028, dollars so it's a little higher anyway, but what they found is that in valuation of life overall did improve over 75000 but not emotional well-being, which is the day-to-day well-being. And then there was a, so that was in 2010, and then there was a study done in 2020, uh, Judy- which was done-
0: Can you just stop? So you're saying on the famous study that everyone ran with, didn't read it, we read the headlines, and we're like, money doesn't make you happy after $75,000. The underlying data shows that the evaluative, so if I evaluated my overall well-being or happiness levels, it was showing consistency with the findings, but the day-to-day was not showing consistency? Okay. Correct. Correct.
1: And I'm not going to go into the details. I would encourage people that have the time and the interest to look at what was actually evaluated and how they did it and what measurement they did, because those nuances really impact the answers as well. And I'm sorry, I don't have the exact wording in front of me to give you that, but there will be the link in the show notes so some can take a look. So then 10 years later, Professor... Uh, Killingsworth, he did a study. And another thing that's interesting is that over time, new technology becomes available, new ways of doing studies become available. And he was able to use smartphones to collect over a million real-time reports of experienced well-being. And his findings found that both of them increased with income. And logarithmic me, which means that percentage-wise, it's not the same, but it does keep on going up. So then the question becomes, why did they get different results? And then in 2022, and the report, I found the study in 2023, there's something called adversarial collaboration that's being done in academia, where professors or academics who did studies that found conflicting results, they get together to try to figure out why they got different results. And the authors of these two studies got together and they tried to figure out what was going on. And they actually came up with an answer. And what they found is that for the original study that was done by Kahneman, there was what they call a ceiling effect, And that's that a very high percent of people had reported that they were happy. And so what they're saying from this third research is that they should have looked the scale and said that unhappiness diminishes with increasing income, but not beyond $75,000. And that the flattening relates to unhappy people. So rather than looking at happiness, looking at unhappiness. So it's a little a twist because such a high percentage of people reported being happy. That really wasn't so valuable to look at that. It was more valuable to look at the people who were unhappy. So then with the second study, the Killingsworth study, what they found was that in the lower range of income, Unhappy people gain more from increased income than happy people. If you don't have a lot of money, unhappy people, when they get more money, they have a bigger increase in happiness, but it flips in the higher ranges where happy people gain more from increased income. So it's a much more nuanced look at things. And so. That's where it's really interesting to keep up to date with what new things are coming on, what new technology is happening, as well as this idea of kind of people getting together to resolve things. But my point of view is that there's been way too much emphasis on how much income people make and how that make how that relates to happiness. And that the better question is what's the, how it relates to how much savings you have as well as how you spend the money. And I think savings is a better identifier with, related to happiness than income because it's not how much you make, it's how much you've saved that I think is important when it comes to happiness. Not that income is not important. If, you're, if you have less money, but you're saving it and you, versus you make a ton of money, but you're in debt, they're not really the right things to be looking at.
0: Going back to these studies, we fixate on these studies, and I remember when Killingworth study came out. Inside of myself, I'm like, "What? No, you can't go against Kahneman." But uh, that's <laughs> your own internal biases at play. But what I'm hearing you say is that happier people did gain more after that seventy-five or eighty thousand quoted in the paper. But that may might not necessarily be linked totally towards money. More so, the individual's personality trait of just more innately happier person
1: i think it's more again what are those people doing with that money
0: that's what yeah that's really what i'm ge-
1: spending that money is more important and you had robert biswas dinner on the mm-hmm. show like the money and happiness score and i have some quotes from him and it's about how you spend the money in terms of how you can be happier with that money and one of the things obviously you spend it on relationships you spend it on experiences you spend it on If you're having fights with your spouse about who's cleaning the bathroom, if you spend it on a cleaning person, if -hmm. you spend it on creating memories of going out to dinner with friends, so you create connection with those people, it's what you do with that money versus if you already have 10 pairs of black pants and you get an 11th pair or you get a super expensive handbag, like that might be, that might give you happiness, but trying to figure out how to spend your money in ways that'll make you that'll maximize your happiness. Mm -hmm. And there's one quote from the person who wrote Stumbling on Happiness. And he talked about, I think, how people tend to spend money the same way when they had less money as they do when they have more money. And that you should rethink how you spend your money um, as the amount of money you have changes.
0: Yeah, I think it's fascinating that we have these habits. We talked about them earlier. And it makes sense to me that how we spent our money if we had less money, we'd be similar, maybe uh, more zeros on the end when we have more money spending it. But I feel like without diving into ourselves, reflecting on what we want, those habits will continue. And what I keep s- seeing for myself, at least, is how we can start integrating this Spire model into our financial lives, into our financial plans, even of how do we use our resources, which is our money. Right on these things that bring us more fruitful returns that lead to this happier life. And I think for a long time, and what I really like about these two individuals collaborating is that it comes out with a nuanced answer, which I think just goes to what we're talking about. It really depends on a combination of how much mm -hmm. money you do make, how much are you saving, and how are you spending, and is that in alignment with your own version of Spire because you also talk about other studies that have conflicting factors that our brains just grasp onto. Why don't you share a little bit of the conflicting responses or findings from the lottery, the so, classic lottery one that we, we refer to?
1: So the other study that got me into creating this presentation was, as you said, that lottery study. And, and it just, again, intuitively, it just didn't feel right that people are, winning the lottery doesn't make people happier. So I took a closer look at that study. And one of the, I'm just looking through the details. So that was a 1978 study. And again, the headline was winning the lottery doesn't increase people's happiness. So one thing was the sample size was only 22 people. So whenever you get like a really small sample size, you should already be a, to make such big sweeping comments based on 22 people, not so good. And again, as I was saying from the Kahneman study, uh, the lottery winners did have positive life changes, including like financial security, easier retirement, less worry, increased le- leisure time, and so there were definitely positive things. And then there was a study that was done in two thousand eighteen, which a much larger sample size of one hundred and sixty six households. So still not gigantic, but versus twenty two, a much bigger and more reliable sample size, and they. Found that winning the lottery did make people happier and that satisfaction with life increased and satisfaction with income increased, and that it was especially pronounced with the big wins. But you have to look more closely with some of the nuances of these things. Like Robert Piswasdiner talked about how winning the lottery can put a strain in people's lives because every friend or relative is asking them for money. It can cause, therefore, those interpersonal hardships. On the other hand, it made, if you look at how much money did they make, did they win and how much relative to how much they already had versus relative to where they lived and how much their relatives had, it's going to be very nuanced and different for different people. It's not going to be the same for everybody. So I think it's these sweeping generalizations are also like not the best things to do.
0: I think it it goes to support the same thing we're exploring around money and happiness is that these to use your words, these sweeping generalizations can sometimes lead us astray when we don't mm-hmm. consider ourselves our own perspectives, what our mm-hmm. own descriptive journey of what happiness is. And it becomes easy to take these headlines and be like, Oh, I don't money's not gonna make me happy because the research the lottery finding says it won't. And I think it just helps us to avoid that discomfort where I feel like it's a good invitation for us to lean into that discomfort where then we could maybe start writing out our own script that involves Aspire or PERMA to create this individual plan for feeling more happiness with our money. Because I think we can't disregard that the money is certainly a resource that can help do those things. But without that understanding, Back to our sa- the sailor thing i was talking about the wind is like the resources in the or the wind in the sails is like the money that we can spend but if i don't know how to sail that right. wind is just going to topple over the boat <laughs>
1: exactly and you can look at each of those five categories and those 15 subcategories and think about how could i use money to help me in those areas with nutrition you can afford to buy organic food potentially Or if you're super wealthy to have a private chef, so you'll eat healthily. Or you have the ability to control your time more so you can get that eight hours of sleep. Or you can, like with mindfulness, you can join a meditation class. Or you can join a gym and have somebody help you exercise. You can afford to go to a therapist, which can be expensive, to help with managing your emotions if you're having trouble with that. You can afford to go on it. I have, I know someone who had a major birthday every month. She took either a friend or relative on a trip Mm. and deepening relationships to celebrate her birthday. So there are, you can get involved with causes and donate to causes. There are so many things you can do with, with your money. Looking at those 15, those five elements and the 15 sub elements. Yeah. No,
0: In alignment with what we're talking here, that alignment of our spending, there's been a lot of work on how we can spend our money, Mm -hmm. specific examples of how we can spend our money that have been proven through research, whether it's through Dunn's work or others, Elizabeth Dunn, that is. What have you learned from these research on how we can spend our money to increase these experiential levels of happiness?
1: I think one thing is that in the research I was doing, one umbrella theme that came up is that having money gives you freedom and flexibility and choices. So it's not you talk about saving for a car or a home or education, but also having money so that something goes wrong in your life or some opportunity comes up. You don't have these big stressors of what am I going to do or, oh, I got this opportunity. I can't afford to go do it or I hate my job. I have a horrible boss. I can afford to quit. I am in an abusive relationship. I can afford to leave it. I think that umbrella idea is a really important one in terms of that freedom and flexibility. The other theme is we start talking about it, using your money wisely and mindfully, not just spending it. The idea of buying time. We always talk about how time is the most limited resource. You can buy time. And the person from economics the university of chicago professor he talked about how when his book became successful and he had more money he doesn't have to be so mindful of every dollar and be so careful with all his money and the example he gave was coming back from the airport normally when you have a rental car you have to fill it up if you don't the gas perfectly you get charged a certain fee and he was like you know what i can afford to pay that fee so he's saving The money let him buy time and be less stressed. Money can be used for those types of things as well. Obviously, you can use it to help other people. There's a wonderful quote I pulled from James Clear, the author of Atomic Habits. And he says, real wealth is not about money. It's about not having to go to meetings, not having to spend time with jerks, not being locked into status games, not feeling like you have to say yes not worrying about others claiming your time and energy. I think that's a really powerful thing in terms of what you can, having money in the bank gives you the, that freedom and flexibility it gives you is really important. There's a lot of research and you probably have seen a bunch of this about how stressed people get with not having money. Uh, there's a study by Ally Bank that found that people that have money that have savings our report being happier, not a big surprise. A 2015 Nielsen study found that a third of people earning 50 to 100,000 are living paycheck to paycheck and even 25% of people earning 150,000 are living paycheck to paycheck. So that stress of not having money 50% of people don't have enough money to cover three months of expenses. I'm sure you've covered some of this stuff, but the stress that comes with not having money and the other thing that a lot of people are financially not very literate, so they don't even know what they don't know. They don't know how to save money, how to invest money, the dangers of credit card debt, a lot of those things. So that's a big issue where... I think if we're talking about happiness and what are the ways we could help people be happier, financial education is a big way you can help people be happier. Just being smarter about their finances, understanding it better. It's not something that gets taught in schools. It's not something a lot of families don't talk about finances very much. Kids don't necessarily learn it from home and they're not learning it from school. So I think those are some of the challenges. So before we talk about, yeah, should you spend money on experiences or spend money on stuff, really think about how do we help people save more? It is also an important topic.
0: You bring up a really important point here and this idea of the flexibility. I want to go back and the freedom Hmm. that money can give and really say can. With an underline. Mm -hmm. It reminds me of the book, Scarcity, by, Mm -hmm. I can't remember both the authors. One is Eldar Shafir. And Mm -hmm. in that book, they talk about how both time and money, having a scarce amount of time and money, can Mm -hmm. really, like scientifically, it impacts our cognitive thinking abilities. And it Mm -hmm. decreases our IQ, I think, as much as having no rest that entire night. I can't Mm -hmm. remember the specific numbers, but it's just they're. The research shows how that level of scarcity, which makes sense, puts us in this brain activity that actually lessens its functioning. So to your point, yeah, having money, enough money, really does help us put ourselves into an area that we can cognitively at least think without this constant stress. And I think at times you forget that fact. So I'm glad you bring that up. And when I say forget, we just don't realize that, oh yeah, that is a key step right from the get-go. And I say this because someone who's experiencing great financial difficulties, it's probably not enough for us just to say, oh, look at the Spire model, go implement that. (laughs) But on the flip end, while the money can create a safety net, so to speak, allowing us to be resilient and go through the bumps of life, I think. It could be also an unsafe safety net. And what I mean by that is we all have heard stories, even know people who have way too much money and they're miserable.
1: Right, absolutely. So, I think what's really important is the word balance and trade-offs. So you want to have a certain amount of money, but how much do you need? And what are you giving up in order to get that money? And that's the important thing. So if you're working you know, 80 hours a week at a job you hate that's high stress in order to make a lot of money, to have all these things that you don't necessarily need to have, that's not a good trade-off. So it's really understanding what you what your trade-offs are and how much you're willing to trade off and being very mindful of those trade-offs. And I, I think and getting the right balance. I was mentioning before we we started recording, I really like the book, The Psychology of Money, And he talks about the importance of balance. It's you shouldn't be trying to make the most possible of money and the most this and the most that. You want to balance the different things going on in your life. I'm not saying as well as he did, but that importance of balance and trade-offs and again, mindfulness and understanding what you're getting and what you're giving up to get that. I, I think we probably, and that's going back to the mindfulness was the first one we talked about with Tull's fire model is paying more attention to what you're doing and why you're doing it and how it's making you feel and what's the impact of what you're doing.
0: Yeah, the, and that balance makes me think of what kind of what we're talking about of is, what do we focus on? Saving more income, how we spend. And I think it goes back to this balance approach. It's not one or the other. It could be all of them in a balanced perspective.
1: Yeah, and... if you're thriving yourself too much, you're never going to save at all because then you'll just won't be able to stick to whatever you're doing. And if you don't understand what the benefits of why you're doing what you're doing, you won't be able to stick to it either, or you'll make poor decisions.
0: You could be the best saver, have a ton of money in your savings account, but it could be at the expense of unsatisfied relationships, poor physical health. and Then I guess we just have to look at ourselves and be like, is that what we want? And I think a lot of this comes back to how do we get these answers? What, Where does balance come from? Curious mm-hmm. if you've ever had thoughts around this idea of self-reflection and how self-reflection comes into the picture of answering that question for ourselves because I can't tell you how much, like what your balance level is. And I think as we navigate these things, at least my per- perspective is self-reflection is a key in finding our own balance.
1: Exactly. And I think for myself, like many people, COVID was a big wake up call and a big time for reflection and change and thinking like what's important in my life and what do I want to be doing? And two years ago, I decided, you know, I didn't want to work for a company anymore and I wanted to go freelance and have more freedom and flexibility and more control over my life. And I made that trade off decision. And I think a lot of people in the last couple of years have reevaluated their lives and thought about their priorities and what's most important and, mm-hmm. and they do
0: So we often have this thought of, oh, if I just, I want to leave and freelance or do what you did. And I think it takes a lot of courage to do that. How, if at all, did you handle that uncertainty? I can assume when you decided to take away the security of a consistent paycheck from wherever you're working. That creates discomforts in ourselves. And the reason why I asked this, I think that's where we can find the many of these answers is navigating that messiness or that resistance. So just curious for yourself, when you took away that financial cushion, what was that like?
1: I think for me, it was different because it was a different, not the typical situation because I got laid off after COVID. Started so in May 2020, I got laid off. So soon after the company, I was working for an agency, and they got hit very hard. And then I immediately, like, a few weeks later, I started a contract job, um, which I thought perfect. It's like something to do for six months while COVID's bad. Try something different, see how I like it, etc. That last ended up lasting eight and a half months, and. I was like, after that, so I knew that job was ending at a certain period and that I was going to have to go look for a new job. So I didn't actually leave a secure job, but based on that experience, I was like, I'm ready. I, I'm ready to do something different. So with a little different, I didn't say, oh, I have this secure job and I'm leaving it. Then I already knew that I wasn't going to be at this job for more than It was supposed to be six months. It ended up eight and a half months, but that was going to be ending. But I also decided not to like actively look for something full time. Mm. I just, my heart wasn't into it. I just, I was ready. But I do think that for other people, it's about planning and saying, okay, if this is what I want to do, what do I need to be able to do that? Do I need to line up some clients? Do I need to... Figure out a budget. I actually was lucky because one of my friends, I had talked to him about what I was going to be doing, and he immediately added me in as a freelance strategist for his company. So I started out having one client right away, but I would have done it anyway. But I was very lucky in that, in terms of that happening.
0: People say you put yourself in the position to be lucky. Yeah, I'm glad. And I was going to highlight that point that you didn't run to go get another paid or I think you call them W4 in the U.S.? W4 w- position. Yeah, or W2. W- you Oh, we're T4. That's where it's confusing. Anyhow, you didn't run to go get another W2 position. You stayed. So I think it's interesting when we, make these inf- we have these inflection points in our lives that we stay the course. I want to ask you a question in a round. When we're talking about this Balancing approach to money saving spending right. how we spend there's another idea that I've heard you talk or reference about, and that's this hedonic adaptation that we often talk about but at times I think we don't actually <laughs> fully embody so what have you learned about hedonic adaptation and it's what role does it play in this conversation we're having
1: okay I, I just have here a definition of hedonic. Or hedonic treadmill, the idea of a new romance or being promoted at work may cause a brief burst of extra joy, but these events will not necessarily change people's everyday levels of happiness in the long run. Instead, they often adjust their expectations to the new status quo and find themselves desiring even more to maintain the same level of happiness. So that's the basic concept of being on a hedonic treadmill. One thing, and that's why people talk about experiences being better use of your money than stuff. And some of them are that the anticipation of experiences makes us happy. Experiences tend to be more social. So it ties into the relationship idea. We're less likely to measure ourselves versus other people with experiences. All that's been changing because of social media. And there's a lot of research on how social media makes people unhappy. With experiences, you can have the joy of remembering photos or talking about us. It changes the way we see the world, depending on the experience, especially travel. We have this need for experiential richness that's very important. We need variety in our our lives and that therefore small changes, they talk about even like walking around the block the other way or going to work in a different direction is really important. So those are some of those things but. That being said, one thing that I do think that overall experiences are very valuable, but again, with this whole black and white, and I feel like there are benefits to things as well, and that that's really something that I think is important to talk about. For example, one is that Experiences and stuff are very interconnected. I have a friend when he got divorced, he talked to, he purposely bought this big screen TV. This was years ago because he wanted his kids to come with their friends and spend time in his apartment. So again, experiences interconnected. Someone else bought a boat because he wanted his high school kids to spend time with him and build those experiences before they went off to college. If you're buying hiking boots, it's to help you hike. A lot of, things you buy are to help you with an experience and then something like a car for some people it's just transportation for other people it's an experience in and, it, in, in and of itself so i and also we all need a certain amount of stuff like you need a couch you need a refrigerator you need things and that does enrich your life but it's about being mindful of what you buy how much you buy how much you spend on it, that type of thing. But we do need things. One thing that Tal talks a lot about is the importance of me search. So it ties into what you were saying a little while ago. It's different for everybody. And for me, when I was thinking about this whole idea of stuff versus experiences, I was like, I've been living where I live for over 10 years. I still walk through the door and I look at the view and I love the view. I have these amazing wood floors. I love and I enjoy the floors. I have a refrigerator that's double door. I, and every time I open it, I love that I have this big refrigerator that I can see everything that's in it. Even like the doorknobs on my closets, they make this really nice sound that makes me happy. So the idea that you hedonically adapt to stuff I think it's true for some things, but it's not everything. So again, it's being mindful. You know, I have certain clothes that all right, I'm not so excited about them anymore, but other ones that I still love. So being mindful of what you do and we you've adapted to versus what you haven't and why and what you can learn from that is really important. And This, I talked to some people within the happiness study community and asked them what they've adapted to and what they haven't. And and some of the themes that came up from my experience and what people talked about was one is utility. There are things, I have this $3 box cutter that it's so much better than I used to use the scissors. Every time I use it, I'm so happy that it works so well. Nature related, people talk about looking at their patios, the trees, their plants, I collect seashells, they give me joy, colorful pillows, colorful rugs, polar impacts people. And there's this idea I just learned about this past week, dopamine dressing. I don't know if you've heard of this. It's Dopamine idea, dressing? I think, yeah. So the clothes you wear, wearing bright colors, gives you a dopamine hit. It mm. makes you happier, the bright colors, and it gives you feelings of pleasure. So... The colors and tell one of the things he talks about is surrounding yourself with things that make you happy can increase your happiness. Obviously, things that are connected to happy memories are things that you're going to remember. Things that are quality, I think things that are higher quality than I ever thought I would have. I haven't hedonically adapted to them. I'm still like, whoa, I never thought I'd have a floor like that. I never thought I'd have a refrigerator like that. I don't think it's all experiences are better than all things. And then there's some research that was done by Elizabeth Dunn and by Weidman, Aaron Weidman, and there's the only study I was able to find on like experiences versus stuff. And their finding was that material purchases provide more frequent happiness over time, while experiential purchases provide more intense happiness on individual occasions. You go on a trip, you have a great time, and you've got a big, intense burst of happiness. You buy a couch; I've had mine for over ten years. You get small amounts of happiness, but over a much longer period of time. So they're not really apples and oranges that you can really compare them. There's different types of happiness. So those those are my thoughts on experiences versus stuff.
0: Yeah, I appreciate it. I think it it highlights the. I'm going to say this the complexity to some degree that it's just not one or the other. What I'm really hearing you say is right. It's understanding ourselves enough to know what type of coach what what level of coach do we need or floors or in my case I'm just thinking of bike. I love biking. I live right by a beautiful right. river valley. Me and my neighbors we go biking together weekly and it's just phenomenal. But I know I like biking. No, where if I didn't, if I just saw everyone biking, I didn't like biking and I bought a bike, now the bike might not make me feel as happy. So I think it comes down to we need to know our boats so we know what kind of sails to get in our
1: our sailboat and what you're passionate about and what gives you happiness. It's going to be different, different people.
0: The view that material things don't bring you happiness comes from where we so often just use money and buying things as a hope that it will bring me happiness. And I think in that case, we realize that often it leads to this hedonic adaptation or the hedonic treadmill where the value decreases over time because it's not the thing necessarily. It's what we do with the thing that aligns with things that make us happy. There was a lot of things in that statement, but...
1: Yeah, so I don't remember where I read this, but somebody, the story where a little boy got a toy truck like from his grandmother or something, and he loved the truck. So the grandmother gave him 10 more trucks. And she's like, why aren't you playing with all the trucks? And he's like, I can't love 10 trucks. It's, which is, I don't yeah, know if it's, great. That's it's that idea when you have, and I have a relative who uses the phrase, anything she brings to her into her home has to pay the rent because it's not just what you paid to get it, but you have to find a place for it. You have to take care of it. It has to warrant the space it's taking up and not just the money you spent for it, which I love that idea.
0: Yeah, that's a great comment. Judy, I see our time is up. Thank you for coming on and sharing your perspectives, the work you've been doing at looking at all the research behind money and happiness. And I think what I'm really hearing here is that It's a balanced approach. It's integrating things like Spire. It's understanding ourselves so that we can know where to allocate our resources, like our money. So, thank you for that. And do you have a final parting words or something to offer to the listeners to think about, or maybe things that you're thinking about?
1: In terms of general advice on money and happiness, and also taking some of the ideas from the Psychology of Money book, it's Live below your means, we talked about. Saving gives you freedom, flexibility, and control. Some key ideas. Be mindful how to spend and save. Think about the opportunity cost and the trade-offs. And spend money in ways that maximize your happiness. I think that's a summary of the key ideas we talked about.
0: Yeah, I like that. I'll include those in the show notes. I think those are very quick and very useful comments. So thank you for that.
1: And not as directly related to money and happiness, but also go beyond the headlines when you're looking at research. (laughs)
0: Keep
1: up to date with new research. Think about what additional questions need to be asked when you're looking at something. Try to look at nuance when you're looking at things. Think of the and instead of the or in terms of it doesn't have to be this or that. And take time to increase your financial literacy. So those are my parting thoughts.
0: That's wonderful. We will include those because I think it's just important for us to remember. And I like that one with the and a lot. I really like that. Thank you. So if listeners are wondering where you live in ours, because they where you live, but we don't need to tell them where you live. Go, they might want to check out that refrigerator and those floors, but let's not tell them where you live. But where do you reside on the internet if there's a place that you can point people if there is one?
1: The one place to find me is on LinkedIn. It's Judy Oppenheim. And otherwise I, I don't have the website or any other sites.
0: We'll include the LinkedIn profile. And Judy, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it.
1: Thank you. I had a great time. Appreciate you inviting me.
0: Thank you for tuning in this week to the most hated F word podcast. If you're still listening, perhaps that means you enjoyed this episode. And if that's the case, I would love it if you could head over to Apple Podcast and leave a review. And before you head out, if you are interested in getting your own song based on your individual money story, I encourage you to head over to www.financialanthem.com where you can participate in our Project 100 Financial Anthems and you can participate in the online exercises that are based in financial psychology exercises and positive psychology exercises that will help you uncover parts of your money story so you can begin creating a healthy and thriving relationship with money, all while creating your very own custom money song. It is so much fun. Check it out. Until next week, take care. Not
1: afraid of the work ahead or letting go of the state of mind I'm on a mountain without a top My wealth is measured and now I spend my time But now I write freedom story with every breath inhaled
0: Money is not the boat of life It's just a win in the wind